Hi there. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision could also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. I encourage you to speak up, spread the word, and please take care. Now on to the conversation. Hello, hello. Anybody there? Hey there. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Can you see me okay? Mm-hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. Really good to meet you, Leticia. Yeah, you too. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining yeah. me. So appreciate it. we're going to go over a whole bunch of stuff, you know, a little bit okay. of everything. <laughs> but uh, good. if it's all right, can we start at the beginning of your creative journey? Sure. Do you remember your earliest memory of making something, creating something? Yeah, um, it's interesting. So when I was in elementary school, I actually uh, was really struggling as a reader um, to the point where my parents and grandparents were extremely concerned. My grandfather on my mom's side, um, pretty sure had probably undiagnosed dyslexia or some other kind of learning mm -hmm. disorder. And it really scared him that I couldn't read because um, I think he, he, it was like he, he thought that, uh, and they were very involved in my life because uh, I was the only child in our kind of small family. Um, and my mom was a single mom at the time. Mm -hmm. And so they were just kind of trying to figure out any way that they could to help me with literacy. Um, and I didn't actually really start reading and decoding like texts until second grade. Oh. Um, but I remember that one of the things that helped me was uh, my one of my I think first grade teachers would give us these like story starters, and so it would be kind of the first sentence of a story, and then you would have to finish the rest. And so I could decode my own writing, <laughs> but I had trouble decoding other people's. <laughs> writing. Um, but that actually like really made me feel super empowered as someone who was struggling with literacy to know that like even though i might be having trouble understanding other people's writing i could still understand my own and like make my own stories mm -hmm. so that that's a memory that just kind of continuously comes back to me because and then i would get bored you know with those story starters um and start kind of thinking about my own things and <laughs> you know by the time i was in fourth grade i was actually reading on a 12th grade level. So like, who knows what was going on there. And, and then some. Yeah. <laughs> Late bloomer, I guess. So you're from Texas, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How was that growing up there? <laughs> it's interesting. Um, <laughs> a lot of feelings about it right now, especially after everything that has happened this week. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I appreciate um, your time this week. I know and I was thinking yeah. that maybe some people might be canceling on me, which with good reason. I mean, that's it's a lot to take in. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that and that consideration. I mean, I did take a little bit of time yesterday just to kind of be with myself because of that. And 
you know, I'm sure it'll come up later in our conversation. But yeah, yeah I mean, I'm I was born in, and raised in Austin, um, which I think has this like. And when I was younger, I think I probably believed this that you know this whole idea of like keep Austin weird and like Austin is this like liberal haven for music and creativity and you know it's not like the rest of Texas blah 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 but what i think that often boils down to is you know um yeah austin is great if you're wealthy white you know like mm -hmm. if you are i think that i i as an adult i think i moved away for college and came back and i have a much different perspective on the austin of my youth mm -hmm because I was shown just kind of how gentrification, um, just income inequality, racism, of course, and the city's long history of segregation has affected, um, you know, who kind of belongs in Austin, right? Yeah. Who feels like they can be in Austin, how much many of these neighborhoods have changed. I can't even afford to live in my own city. I live in, right. in Pflugerville, which is north of Austin. Hmm. And so that was kind of something that I always want to challenge when people talk about Austin is that there are, you know, a lot of folks here who are trying to make change happen, but it's not this like haven that every, you know, that it's always cracked up to be. And yeah. I had a friend tell me that as soon as you start putting keep Austin weird on a bumper sticker and you start monetizing something that was supposed to be this kind of hippie, yeah. uh, like, you know, more rebellious like thing, that's it. Like it's gone now. Yeah. Austin's a brand now. It seems it is very much so. And yeah. I have a lot of love for Texas and, you know, and the communities that I've been a part of and like love for the hill country and like, you know, my on my mom's side of the family, they've been in Texas for many generations. My dad, uh, my dad's side of the family um, is from South Texas, from the Valley, uh, Nuevo Laredo area. And so that's kind of like, yeah, I have deep, deep roots in Texas. And I think, you know, anywhere you live in the United States, but especially Texas that has this very like storied past and lots of, you know, mythologizing of Texas heroes and things like that. I right. had to teach Texas history when I taught fourth grade. Yeah. And I had a lot of trouble trying to get my bilingual, mostly Mexican American and Latinx immigrant students to stop, <laughs> to, to understand that like, no, we didn't win in the Alamo. No one won that, like, yeah. you know. Um, That's gotta be such a challenge. I mean, you realize that there's only a portion of the story that is being told in a lot of cases. Yeah. Uh, as I ramble on in this podcast time and again, I'm a Mexican in Wyoming, so I very much yeah. empathize with your position where there were things that we just didn't hear in our classroom when mm -hmm. I was growing up in middle school, high school, about the way Native Americans were and indigenous peoples were treated here in Wyoming. A whole bunch of stuff that like is part of who we are part of mm -hmm. part of the state you know that I call home and sadly I get to find out about it on the internet archive or wikipedia or something you know but yeah. I'm sorry go go ahead I just uh, I think it's a very important thing that you're doing mm -hmm. and it's a real thing that has to be addressed but at least on a community level right that's where Yeah it absolutely I mean I kind of see it more as my role as a as an educator or as a as a teaching artist, which is kind of more my role now. 
as I left public school teaching. But I think it's more just exposing youth, especially to those stories and to those truths, because I want them to be able to learn more than I, you know, like, as you said, that we were exposed to. Mm. Um, and to understand that, like, these stories uh, that are continuously unquestioned are extremely harmful. Um, they have bearing on how white supremacy has, you know, continues to affect our state and our cultures um, and erases people's stories. And like, you know, there's, uh, there's these like, well, you know, there's like Walker, Texas Ranger and like, you know, all these like, and now there's a reboot of it, which I have feelings about, but it's a whole other situation. <laughs> but, you know, like the Texas Rangers historically were tasked with, yeah, killing indigenous peoples and driving them out of an area uh, where, you know, uh, they wanted to settle, where European Americans wanted to settle. They were tasked with, uh, you know, um, finding enslaved peoples and trying to return them to slavery. And they were also tasked with lynching Mexicans. So like, yeah, that's really the story that we can want to continue right. to keep coming back to. I don't know. feels weird. No, I, I totally get it. But there's this thing that ends up happening of hero worship, uh, sort of becoming a band-aid for things that nobody wants to talk about. And it's, mm -hmm. it's like a twofold thing that happens, right? Where you get this, uh, new deity of some kind that everyone's right. supposed to kind of focus their attention and and their worship, and mm -hmm. and at the same time, it's just pushing everyone else who doesn't subscribe to that away to the very fringes. And I can't imagine. I mean, now in these contentious times, how how Texas uh, is is you know in terms of the climate. Um, yeah. Yeah. How does that affect your writing? I guess I should I should kind of bring it there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if you let me, I, you're finding me on a clearly I'm a super uh, spicy day. No, where but like, I, I appreciate it. I mean, yeah. I, I think it just speaks so much of, of what you care about, what you believe in, which is rightfully so. If we give a shit, we got to get worked up, you know, like we, we yeah. can't we have to vocalize um, this stuff. So I appreciate your thoughts on all of this. Yeah. I mean, as far as my writing is concerned, you know. With the book that it, we're going to talk about with Las Criaturas, a lot of that stemmed from anger and kind of, I've always been drawn to writing um, kind of weirder stories, um, writing kind of, and, and poetry as well, that is exploring kind of, um, exploring nature, exploring you know, the, the kind of weirdness in our world and around us, um, whatever that kind of means to you. And so I've always gravitated towards fantasy. I've always gravitated towards um, horror. And I think as I was exposed, uh, especially kind of in my graduate program, not so much through my instructors, but through just like other, uh, <laughs> other fellow writers, um, as I was exposed to more speculative fiction, I think that's really where I found my... Um, found other writing that was speaking to what I was, uh, to what I was really working on. Um, and so that's kind of like where I think I started to explore things, especially in my second year of my MFA program, um, which was a really, really hard year for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was 2016. So it was also just, just like the height of the Trump campaign. Yeah. Um, 
and just feeling a lot of anger in general towards um, you know, kind of misogyny, patriarchy, um, racism, right, xenophobia, all these different things that were happening both in my experiences sometimes in grad school or with other, you know, folks mm. in my cohort, and then also kind of in the great in the larger world, right? Yeah. Um yeah. So did you feel like at any point during your graduate program, like you were represented? Did you feel like there was a place for you there? Um, or, or what was that tension um, that, yeah. was, that was originating there? I mean, I wasn't the only Mexican-American person in the program, but there were few of us. Um, and, you know, I will also just say like i'm also half white so you know like there's definitely privileges to how i was able to move in that program and maybe how i was treated but like it was interesting um how othered i was even just being mexican-american right um mm -hmm. and that's kind of i think speaks to how like ethnicity is racialized in our society in in the u.s specifically um but yeah, no, I, I don't I don't think we were represented. I had an instructor compare my work to Edgar Allan Poe once, and I was like, dude, what? <laughs> I had no hate on Poe. I, I like his work, <laughs> but like that's the comparison you thought of? Mm. Cool, okay, yeah. interesting. So yeah, no, I, I think that the community that I was able to find there was through folks that were coming into the program maybe a year after me who I felt were were seeing how, you know, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, um, and I've definitely like, you know, as a as someone who's organized spaces, you know, I think I've had to think long and hard about this because I've never I haven't always been successful about making, you know, really great community spaces, but I think what I've learned over time is that community has to be uh, intentionally created and it doesn't just exist because you say it does. Mm. And that was my biggest critique, I think, is that I think that they thought that because writers are coming together to create that we're going to you know, make a community and it's going to be great and we're going to support one another. And that could not be further from the case. Mm especially when you have like competition of resources and other things like that. Right. Yeah. So it um, seems like you, there has to be a clear intent so that there is, there's some kind of, of parody almost, but mm -hmm. what kind of influences did you find on your own that weren't available there? What kind of work was drawing you in that wasn't available in the program? I, one of the things that I think was super helpful was I met, uh, my good friend, Sara Rafael Garcia, who she was graduating the year I was coming in, but she connected me with a lot of other folks. Um, and she connected me to Resistencia Bookstore, which is in Austin. I've lived in Austin my whole life and I had never been there, wow. um, but they've been there for over 40 years, right? They're, <laughs> they're a Latinx, uh, you know, Chicanx indigenous focused bookstore. Oh, wow. And Yeah. I would, I just got to say, I would kill for that because I'm still yeah. looking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've yet to find one in Wyoming, so I'll have to yeah. get their, uh, their website. <laughs> yeah, I will definitely share. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think that was one of the things that like connected me to 
other writers um, locally who I think were pushing boundaries and also who have become friends and mentors, my, you know, uh, such as like Irene Laura Silva, who's an amazing poet and writer here uh, based in Austin, who has, done, you know, looked at multiple manuscripts, including some of the pieces in this book. Mm. And so I think that like really helped me when I felt like I was very isolated I was able to find those kinds of moments and and those friends who are still friends today um, and those kind of pieces of community. And I think um, like that was another time in which I was uh, kind of digging into Carmen Maria Machado's work. Um, I think she was extremely influential, influential. her book, Her Body and Other Parties, um, really just kind of blew my head open as far as like what you could do with short stories and storytelling, um, how, how you could kind of address the horrors of violence and, um, uh, and also, you know, kind of assault and all these different things that I've experienced in my life, you know, through, through speculative fiction and through kind of these um, weirder storytelling uh, lenses. So that was definitely um, a person that, I come back to it time and again. Oh, that's awesome. So short stories are your preferred medium. Do you think that's where you where you go in primarily and and feel like that's your primary canvas? You know, I used to think that, but I don't I I think today I would say no. Mm-hmm. Um I think that my work kind of you know, I got my MFA in fiction writing because you have to choose, right? Mm-hmm. Um but I also did take you know, a poetry class or two because I, I still love poetry and I, and that's one of the reasons why this collection is both, right? It's both, you know, kind of short fiction, flash fiction, prose and poetry because I just kind of got tired of these distinctions between genres. Um, I think that you have to learn about kind of how each genre is working and what is the best fit for a particular piece. But um, no, I mean, I think what I tell my students, my creative writing students sometimes is poetry to me is about exploring moments, but they can also, you know, like connect to other longer stories or parts of your life. Whereas a short story can also be about moments, but it can also, you know, bring in a breadth. And with poetry, every word counts, right? Versus with a story, you can have a little bit more room to move, but a lot of times those blend together. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And then I've also gotten more into essay and more into like starting to explore comics as well. So I don't know. I'm all over the place. No, but that's great because it feels like you, you don't have to make an arbitrary choice to say I'm a short story writer or any of that mm-hmm. stuff. You allow the work to tell you what it wants to be in some yeah, ways. Exactly. So uh, speaking specifically about Las Criaturas, which is a hell of a title. I, I love it. And I also love the the cover. It's so appealing to mm-hmm. me and, and weird and interesting, but I'm interested in the genesis of that particular project. Yeah. The cover, I, I just cannot say more about how beautiful it is. And the artist, Elaine Almeida, who uh, is a local artist at UT Austin, um, or she was going to UT Austin, just did an amazing job of kind of reading some of the work and, and capturing the feeling of the of the book. So just cannot sing her praises enough. Um, and yeah, 
you know, like I said, I started writing some of the pieces in this book in 2016 and in that year when I felt like I was struggling most in the program, struggling with feeling a sense of belonging. Um, I had left my job as an elementary school teacher to focus specifically on the program just because I was trying to do both and it was just exhausting. And it was also the year that I um, started experiencing extremely debilitating migraines that I was later diagnosed with a headache disorder. So I was driving, you know, two hours pretty much back and forth each day to get to my program. Mm. And uh, I think I, you know, my body was like breaking down, literally. I was having a lot of health issues. um, And so while I was supposed to be working on a novel, which was for my thesis, because your second year, if it's a three-year program, is usually kind of when you start like declaring what it is you're going to work on. Um, I was writing a lot of these pieces, and some of them focus on children's perspective, and specifically, you know, one of the stories is about just wanting to explore the perspective of a child who is incarcerated in a detention center um, because I work with children and because I, I just couldn't, I was trying to kind of fathom the trauma and, and how it would destroy a, a child's sense of self to be criminalized in such a way. Yeah. But through kind of a monstrous lens, right? Through kind of exploring like who is the monster. So I kept coming back to that. And then, you know, a lot of other poems were coming up that were speaking specifically, you know, against misogyny and, and um gendered violence. And I think that it kind of just spiraled from there and I just kept adding to it. Um I and the title Las Criaturas felt right to me and it still does I think because yeah. you know obviously like it it um translates specifically I guess as creatures the creatures right but it can also refer to children it can also refer Absolutely. to kind of like and as you just, were saying you know, that yeah the moment you yeah. mentioned that I was like oh shit that's just so lovely <laughs> and it's such a powerful thing I can even recall when we started getting word of the way that those children were treated, I think it's one of those things that you just can't recover from. The fact mm-hmm. that that's happening in our supposed civilized society is one of the more devastating things that we've seen in recent memory. So I'm really eagerly anticipating to read to read that um, for that alone and then for the other wonderful things that you're writing. So that seemed to be kind of the engine of of getting the project started this difficult time in your life what mm-hmm. was the biggest hardship to overcome to get this project to the light of day it did you know like like i said if i started it in 2016 it's been a while since then right and it, it was published in 2021 and i think a big part of it is um I guess the two biggest things were it's hard to sell, quote unquote, a book that is not one thing or another. That's a hybrid text, right? Especially one that's kind of shorter. It's, you know, it's a little over chat book length. It it was just kind of not a convenient thing to try to be like, hey, you want to publish this? Hmm. And I kind of went in knowing that I would want an indie, you know, or kind of a smaller press to work with this both because of that aspect, but also because I wanted to find, you know, a a press that was going to treat it 
for what it was and not try to make it something else. Mm. Um, you know, someone who would still give me good feedback and everything, but also not try to kind of like formulate it to be more translatable, I guess, to a, a larger audience. Um, and then also just like work and life. And, you know, I even uh, when when it was picked up by Edward Vidwari uh, at Flower Song, who just the the best possible person and best possible press I think that I could have had for this collection. Mm. He was kind of like, okay, waiting on you now. Like, <laughs> when are we, you know, because I was working full time dealing with my own kind of health issues and just kind of, uh, yeah. And then I, I think I had a little hard time letting go of the collection. First oh, book see. ever published, you know, so yeah, it's probably a little bit of both. <laughs> So I yeah. meant to ask you about your time as a, as an educator in the public school system. Sure. I'm sure it just, it, it doesn't taint your lens, but it definitely affects the way that you've experienced the last five or six years. Can you tell me a bit about that experience? And you mentioned that you're more doing something in education that's a bit different. So what led mm -hmm. you to make a change or to, uh, to move from that? If you could share a couple of thoughts on that. Sure. Um, yeah, I taught uh, for six years in the Round Rock School District. Um, I loved my students and I really made a lot of great connections with some wonderful educators. And I, I think I learned a lot. I started teaching kindergarten and then I taught fourth grade and then second grade. And I think I left for a number of reasons. Um, you know, one of them obviously was because I was you know, I made the decision to take a huge pay cut, right? Like I, I left, you know, teachers are not paid well, but at the time it, I was being paid the most I'd ever been paid for any job because I was younger and that was just had been my experience. And I had health insurance and, you know, just some of the things that are stable about teaching. Um, and I was looking at letting all of that go and that was scary. Yeah. Um, but I also really felt like I needed that because I just didn't have time to create. And, you know, like the, the pressure to create in an MFA is very great. Yeah. Um, I don't know that leaving teaching, you know, because then I became a TA, <laughs> you know, so I don't really know that that like I never really left teaching and I never really let that go. But I think it, it changed. I also think that especially after teaching fourth grade and working with students who are just amazingly talented writers and so creative and then seeing all that get beaten out of them with standardized testing. Um, I just like came to a point where I was seeing all the rips and the seams of the system and how that was never going to be the place that I felt like I could really be the best for my students, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah because I was also a bilingual teacher and I was being expected to teach like five lessons a day, right? You're teaching, you know, writing, you're teaching math, you're teaching reading, you're teaching all these things. And it's like, okay, so maybe like two of those lessons will be great. And then the rest of them will probably be shitty. <laughs> and that's right? so much. It's so unreasonable <laughs> yeah. that uh, I, I feel like that's such a major reason why we're losing so many wonderful, talented teachers who care about their students right. that there's just too much on them. But now you are doing more community-based creative work, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit about how that's going or how that started? Yeah, um, I think it, it started a little bit for me with um, Barrio Writers, which is a 
um, organization that my friend Sara, who I met at the MFA, started. Um, she started it in Santana, California, and then when she was here in Austin um, or in San Marcos, she brought it to the area. And when she went back to California, she wanted me to kind of take it over. Um, and so I've been doing that for a number of years, and it's a free workshop for teens that we do in the summer, kind of focused on college level writing, but also on social justice and kind of exploring their stories. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started, uh, I did a fellowship with the city about how to become a teaching artist and like, oh, great. you know, doing your own workshops for adults and for kids and folks. And so I started kind of getting into that. Mm. Um, just doing that independently. I started designing some of my own workshops and then, um, I, uh, got a job with Austin Bat Cave, which is a local nonprofit that does, uh, creative writing workshops for youth in the area. So now I get to help other, you know, instructors plan and implement those workshops. So mm. definitely feel like this is where <laughs> I have met, been meant to be because yeah. I have so much freedom um, to, to make some of these, uh, really cool things happen. Oh, that's incredibly uplifting to hear, especially because the, the ability to supplement any kind of work that's happening in school, especially when I personally believe that writing and creativity is such a great way to get to know yourself that kids at that vulnerable age just need to have that in their lives. And that's very yeah. commendable that you folks have that in, in Austin. But in terms of the overall picture of your community, I mean, if, if you could elaborate a little bit on, on, mm -hmm. on that, what can we gain as a community from these kinds of services, especially for youth yeah. and teenagers? I think that one of the things I come back to a lot and I talk about with my colleagues and with other friends who are kind of doing similar work is that so many of our students have experiences in school either because like i said of standardized testing or the pressures are just you know i love uh, i have a lot of love for educators but like i think that i think that public education as a system um is designed to beat the humanity out of you and i saw it in myself in times where like that pressure really can make you someone who is in opposition to your students rather than like support for them. Um, I'm not saying that that's the way it is for every educator, but you know, there are a lot of educators out there who have made youth and students feel like they're not writers mm. either because English is not their first language or, you know, because maybe they're struggling in a particular area. Um, and so that's my biggest goal always. And, and something that I, I really try to kind of like focus on with other instructors if I'm training them or if I'm working with them to help plan curriculum is how can you make space for them to write, you know, what feels right for them and to make them feel that they are writers, that their stories matter, that they have something to say, not, and it doesn't have to be some kind of serious message, but that they have room to be creative um, and grow you know, without feeling impeded by um, kind of these traditional educational structures, because that was my experience so much when I was in, you know, graduate school. And, and I, I don't want to repeat those same cycles. Right. Um, right. Do you have any specific moments in your teaching career where a student made you a better writer? Like a specific oh. moment that, that you said, oh, wow, this is completely reframing the conversation in my mind. 
gosh, it's really hard to like pick any one moment. Um, I feel like they do that to me all the time. Like, you know, planning programs is very um, tiring. And oftentimes I will, <laughs> the week leading up to a program, I'm, I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but then I'm in there with them. And, and especially now that when we've been able to go back to, um, we still, we're still doing some hybrid virtual programs, but we're, you know, going back to like in-person programs for the first time and, you know, a while because of the pandemic. Um, just being in the space with them and hearing them talk about their work and like, just, yeah, just having those conversations. I always feel more creatively energized after that because I think that for so many of them, they're not impeded by shame, um, you know, necessarily, especially the younger students. They're not impeded by all the must do's or the what they think it should be, right? They're just mm -hmm. kind of like letting whatever comes, comes. And then you have to kind of decide like, what's the best way for me? Like, what is their goal with this piece and how am I gonna help them get there mm -hmm. so that I'm not making them feel bad about their work, right? Right. Um, so to me, that's kind of the thing that I always feel really energized by is seeing all the possibilities in their work and thinking like, why am I feeling hemmed in <laughs> by all these other expectations of a professional writer, right? When this kid is doing this amazing poem, you know, like I had a student a few weeks ago who didn't like poetry, supposedly didn't really connect with poetry, didn't feel like he was a poet. And he left with like three poems that he wanted to publish in our anthology. And Aww. it was like, you know, so, <laughs> um, yeah, I think those are the moments that really help me understand that if their mindsets can change and grow and if they're doing all these things, why can't I? Oh, that's incredible. Now, in regards to your process, what are some things that are tried and true for you that work for you in matters of routine or process? What's tried and true for you? You know, I think, you. yeah, 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 for me. Yes, I would like to caveat for me. Um, <laughs> You know, I think I would like, if you had asked me this question 10 years ago, I think it probably would have been a very different answer. But um, because I live with chronic illness and because I just navigate like chronic fatigue and all these kind of other issues, I really have moved away from this idea of creating every day. Um, I think if it works for other people, that's great. But I think it can also kind of start getting into the ableism like sure uh territory right like not all of us are able to do that um and to be honest with you like i have found that uh writing on my phone in a google doc from bed is sometimes my best starting point oh nice um so sometimes i might just have an idea or a scene or something like that that i'll kind of like put in a folder or put in a doc and i'll leave it there for a minute and then I might come back to it and just add a little bit to it and add a little bit to it. Sometimes, you know, like a poem or something comes out fully formed and that's great. Um, and I do love to write in journals and I do try to journal at least a couple times a week, but I really don't feel like there's a consistency to it. I think sometimes it's really just like, it's almost like throwing an idea against a wall and seeing kind of what forms from that. <laughs> And if I come back to it, great. I mean, I have 
docs upon docs in my in my Google folder of stuff that maybe I'll come back to it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and others that have just taken time to form either like like an essay that I'm working on right now that has taken a couple years to form because my understanding of what I was writing about has changed. So that's that's lovely. And I'm definitely going to be stealing some uh, some tidbits <laughs> and uh, yeah. habits, you know, to to reshape my writing. Now, just a couple more questions to be mindful of your wonderful Sunday morning or afternoon. Um, yeah. How would one go about building a support group or a community if they're just getting started? What are some things that, that we might be able to learn from your time as a, an educator uh, and, and a creative teacher and, and an author mm. yourself? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I will say that one of the challenges that I had over the course of the pandemic is um, just navigating a lot of like things, navigating some some grief and, and loss that was happening. And mm. um, and so I felt, you know, quite isolated, but it was also a healing process for me. And so I'm still learning kind of a little bit now, relearning rather what it's like to be in community with others, because I still don't see people as often as I would like to or what have you. Having said that, though, I think like the ways that I've been able to find community is through actively seeking out like like Resistencia Bookstore, right? Like actively seeking out some of those spaces, going to open mics, right? Going to um, some of these spaces where other organi organizers are um, kind of making space for like healing circles, making space for um, community discussions, right? Um, even, and I, I haven't been to a meetup in years, but I met a very good writer friend who I'm friends with him and his partner um, now for years at a meetup, a writing meetup like years ago. So oh, wow. yeah, um, some of those can be hit or miss, um, <laughs> definitely. But uh, I think that it is kind of actively seeking out spaces that you feel like especially if you're looking for a space that's like, you know, um, queer friendly, right? Or queer and trans friendly, or like if you're looking specifically for writers of color, or you're looking for kind of a particular experience, I think, you know, social media and, and, and being kind of in some of those conversations can really help you find those spaces. Even if it just starts with one person that maybe you wanna do like an accountability group with or something like that. And maybe you meet every Sunday and you write together for an hour, mm. you know, whatever that looks like. But I think that's kind of where you have to start. Yeah. What do you have going on in the next year or so? What are you working on that you're really, really excited about? So I'm working on, um, I have, I, two of my big goals this year were to write more horror stories specifically. So I have one that is supposed to be coming out, um, in an anthology later on this year. And I'm just kind of trying to like, write more. I've always loved horror. I think horror is an amazing genre that can explore so many different um, issues that face our, our uh, society. And, and um, so that's something I'm really excited about. And then I'm working, I don't want to say too much about it because, you know, <laughs> Top because, secret. But, we gotta, yeah, yeah, gotta no, keep I some mean, things under wraps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think just because I'm trying to hold it close to my heart a little bit, but yeah. I'm working on a YA novel um, you know, which I'm super excited about because I, I love, you know, young adult literature and I, I work with youth. So that's important to me. 
um, specifically kind of exploring um, the spiritualist movement here in Austin and and the character who is kind of navigating grief and loss um, and and spirit communication. And so that's wonderful for me because I, I gravitate a lot towards historical fiction. And um, so I've, it's allowed me a lot of research and really cool stuff like that. Um, so those are some things I'm exploring. And like I said, I also love comics and graphic novels and I would really love to be able to do that in the future as well. So Oh. Like I said, I'm all over the place. <laughs> no, wonderful, wonderful. Very exciting stuff. And that reminds me that I really wanted to ask you about spirituality within writing, if you think that's a thing. I know that's a completely like big topic that we we might need another episode for, but <laughs> sure, <laughs> right. you keep like like uh, bringing up other things that I want to ask you about. But <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Can you tell me what you mean by spirituality? You know, I'm. I'm very much interested in whether there can be a kind of spirituality in writing, in particular for folks who may not subscribe to a kind of faith, you know, or a religion right. of some kind. You know, there's there's a lot of folks and, and I go back and forth. I go in between like feeling like, oh, writing is sort of the thing that fulfills me and gives me a kind of spiritual kick that, mm. that makes me feel mm -hmm. a little bit better. And so I wonder if that's something that you think is is necessary something you think about at all or um yeah. what what is the role of that if any yeah i mean i i grew up with a catholic family and a southern baptist family and i am not either <laughs> one of those yeah like extremely <laughs> extremely no um I respect other people's faith and I, I mean, to an extent, as long as it's not harming others, which unfortunately it is oftentimes. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, in that case, especially, and so like, I do think though that there is something spiritual, I guess, as far as connecting with other people, right? And uh, connecting with other people's stories, you know, I've read so many works, um, especially like as I was navigating my own experiences with chronic illness and trying to just find other stories that made me feel like other people understood what I was going through, even if it was a different diagnosis or something like that, mm. that to me, writing makes me feel more real. It makes me feel like a real person in the world who is engaging. Um, because sometimes when you have trauma and other things going on, you, you know, disassociation is a real issue. And, mm. Um, and pain, chronic pain is often a disassociating thing. Um, and so like when I'm able to write about some of these experiences, it makes me feel like my story is real. It is something that whether someone else believes it or connects with it or not, it feels real to me. And when other people tell me that they picked up my book or they read something else and they felt that their story was affirmed in some way, that's really like, that's what I want. For other people to connect with my work and that's what i look for when i'm reading other people's work is yeah how can we all make one another feel more real in this world that is often trying to erase you know marginalized people all the time um so that does feel like a spiritual connection because it's an affirmation of our humanity and our you know personhood i guess um yeah. if yeah. that makes sense that makes so much sense. And I, it actually answers my last question, which typically <laughs> revolves around the, the overall overarching importance of, of the arts and how it can bring 
a sense of healing. So you really like covered it (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, a variation of that for me is uh, how does an individual overcome fear? How do we Mm -hmm. find strength in, in this world? And it's getting tougher and tougher, but I I feel that uh, storytelling does have a a role in that. Um, So if, if there's anything else you'd like to add on that train of thought, um, <laughs> I think yeah. you just covered it so well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. They, these are wonderful questions. Thank you. And like, I, I don't know that I have any, you know, pearls of wisdom to, to give beyond that, but I guess I would just say like, as someone who just, you know, has anxiety and, you know, yeah, like, like you said, it's a very fearful time to live in, um, both kind of thinking about what a future will look like, um, for all of us and, and also just kind of dealing with what feels like blow after blow after blow, you know, especially I will just kind of say like after the shooting in Uvalde, that was like so close to home and really I'm still kind of like processing what that feels like, especially as someone who works with youth and and kids. Um, So many things like that uh, feel like they're just kind of wearing us down. And I think, you know, I don't think that, writing necessarily is making like kind of these huge overarching changes right away. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think that we can lie to ourselves and say like, well, I'm a storyteller and I'm doing the most important work (laughs) there is. Right. But I do think it is important again to kind of affirm that like this is happening, right. Like where, you know, you're acting as witness or you're acting as kind of interpreter of what's happening in your own way, in your own story, which is going to be very different from someone else's story. And um, I do think that that's important, not just to catalog what's happening, but also to just help other people feel like, no, you're not, you know, you're, you're not, uh, you're not imagining it. It really is this way. And, um, and sometimes I think that that can be the starting point mm-hmm. to more action and more change. Um, I, I struggle all the time with what I feel like my role is in community and in making things better for, for all of us. And I think we all have to kind of deal with that. Absolutely. But it leaves us with a sense of responsibility to feel like we need to back up our communities and mm-hmm. help each other out, care for each other as best we can. So that's, that's a really awesome note to end on. And uh, Leticia, mm-hmm. thank you so much for your time, for sharing your story and uh, your openness in your work, you know, through magic and fantasy and in the weird and the scary. I, I can't wait to, uh, to check out your work and get to, you know, catch up with you on the internet, but I really appreciate your time. No, thank you so much. Jaime. I really appreciate it. These were wonderful questions and uh, thank you for making the time to chat with me about this. And yeah, I'm sure we'll be in touch. That's right. That's right. Don't <laughs> hesitate to say hi. And when the next one comes out, I'll be here. okay yes we'll share that with you thank you all right hope you have a wonderful sunday thanks you too bye hey there before i go i just wanted to thank you for listening to the podcast if you're enjoying arts calling please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen to these episodes every little bit helps to bring awareness about these wonderful artists that we're featuring on this podcast And don't forget to say hi. I'm over on Twitter at CruiseFolio, and I would love to hear from you, love to know what you're working on, and I wish you the best in life and craft. Make art, make haste, and much love.